Hello, this is episode 220 and in it, I'm going to be providing an update to our last episode and continuing our celebration of five years of the Get It Right podcast. Now, our last episode was a reboot of not only the most popular episode of year one of the podcast, it's also the most popular episode in the entire podcast's five years. Now, if you haven't listened to that episode, be sure you do so by heading back to episode 219 and you can find it and its full downloadable PDF transcript by heading to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 219. That's the numbers 219. And that episode was called Still the Most Important Thing to Know When Designing Your Home. In this episode, I want to bring you some current information about the way that we create homes and how this can impact the things to know when designing your home, plus give you some ways to order your decisions as well. And this is the thing about designing, building and renovating. It involves boatloads of decisions, which can be overwhelming for many. And if you're aiming for the perfect house and you think that by making all the perfect decisions, every step of the way is going to be what gets you there, then you may actually get really frustrated. So this episode is going to help you simplify your decisions and give you the ability to get clarity in your decision making process. You can grab a full transcript of this episode, plus information with other helpful links and resources related to this topic as a free PDF download by heading to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 220. That's the numbers 220. So be sure to head to the link and grab the PDF transcript so that you can file that away and review this episode as needed. Now let's dive in. Welcome to the Get It Right podcast. I'm your host, Amelia Lee from Undercover Architect. With over 25 years industry experience, I've worked with loads of homeowners like you to create family homes that work, feel great, and that you feel great in. I'm a wife and a mum to three kids who, thanks to our own renovations, they all learned to climb ladders before they walked. And I'm a registered architect who is passionate about you feeling informed, educated, and empowered as you design, build, or renovate your home. Now, if you're up for some frank and open conversation about the true nitty gritty of designing, building and renovating based on professional and personal experience across hundreds and hundreds of homes, well, you're in the right place. Undercover Architect is an award-winning online business and resource that began in mid-2014. And it's all about teaching you how to create a fantastic, feel-good family home. One that works for you now and into the future one that is sustainable and affordable, and that helps you live a great lifestyle, both in and beyond your home. So whether you're renovating or building, whoever you're working with, and whatever your dreams, your location, or your budget, consider Undercover Architect your secret ally in helping and teaching you how to get it right. Now, before we jump into this podcast episode, a quick shout out to my sponsors. Today's podcast episode is brought to you by me and my free online workshop, Your Project Plan. I actually created this online workshop because I so regularly see a lot of time and money get wasted in renovation and building projects. And this happens largely because homeowners just don't know what they're supposed to be doing next. So that makes it really easy to make missteps, to take the wrong advice, or to actually skip important parts of your project that will catch you out down the track or worse, mean that you miss out on things that you really wanted in your home. Learn how to avoid serious and expensive mistakes, what to do next, whatever stage you're at in your project, and also access some great bonuses too by heading to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash project plan. And that's project plan spelled P-R-O-J-E-C-T-P-L-A-N. That's undercoverarchitect.com forward slash project plan. 
take the guesswork out of the next steps you need to take in your project journey and sign up today for free for this great online workshop. And now let's get on with the episode. Here we go. So the rebooted episode shared in our last episode, it was the first episode of season one. And if you haven't listened to season one in its entirety, I really encourage you to do so. In it, I actually take you through what you need to know about designing for orientation and understanding more about the natural assets of your site and the ways that you can create a home that works in a site-specific way. And then that's followed by season two, which takes you room by room through each space and room in your home. And those two seasons, season one and season two, they're just really great for getting you clear on the things that will matter in your home design decisions and also help you to get started on thinking about how you want to live and the way that you can make that work on your specific site. For the rest of year one on the podcast, we then dived into season three, which was all about setting and sticking to your budget. And the entire transcripts of that season are available as a chunky ebook inside my mini course, Set and Stick to Your Budget. And also inside that mini course is a raft of other great information, including a video workshop and a budget spreadsheet template. Now that was followed by season four, which was called Know Your Team. And in that season, I interviewed many of the different types of professionals that you may need to use in your reno or new build project, including an architect, a building designer, a a town planner, a structural engineer, a landscape architect, and the list goes on. So if you're curious about how different professionals work and what they do and how they help, that's a really great season to listen to before hiring your own project team. Now, the rebooted episode that was in our last podcast, it discussed the subject of orientation and about knowing how the sun moves across your home and your site so that you can maximise the incredible benefits of natural light while managing the heat of the sun according to the season, so to keep your home warm in winter and cool in summer. I do firmly believe that doing this is the single biggest thing that you can do to make your home feel great and you feel great in it. And I also believe that it's the single biggest thing that you can do to create a sustainable home as well. When you're utilising what's available for free and you're optimising its ability to heat and cool your home naturally, it's a really sustainable choice in lowering your energy use in your home overall. Let's talk about that energy use for a minute because you may have heard the terminology net zero when it comes to homes. Now, net zero homes are homes that produce the same amount of energy through renewable energy sources such as solar power as the energy that they consume in their occupants' everyday use of the home. For some sectors of the industry, net zero is the desired big push. This is seen as the way to significantly improve the impact that our homes have on the climate and the environment. And this is all shaped around this idea of how can I consider my home's use of energy and then supply that energy use with renewable energy sources instead of relying on fossil fuels or gas to supply it. So this supply can be through your home being on solar power or through purchasing green power from your energy supplier. So up front, I'll say that I definitely think that net zero is a great goal when it comes to your future home. However, if you're just creating any kind of home and then you're just whacking enough solar on it to create the power that you need to run it, it's probably not achieving what's possible with improving our home sustainability. It really needs to go hand in hand with some other concepts for sustainable home design. I'm going to dive into all of that in more detail in a minute, but first let me break down your home's energy use so that you can have a better understanding of it. 
Artificial heating and cooling accounts for around 40% of your home's energy use. And so it's definitely a money-saving and energy-saving strategy to figure out how you can design a home to require less or no artificial heating and cooling. And that is possible. Designing for orientation definitely goes a long way to assist with this, as does considering the insulation of your home, its air tightness, and its overall design and construction to improve its thermal performance. Water heating is next, okay? And so water heating is around 23% of your home's energy use. So choosing more efficient hot water units is also worthwhile. Heat pump water heaters use over 60% less electricity than a traditional electric water heater, and they use heat from the surrounding air to heat your hot water. In some areas, they can actually be more than 80% efficient. So you don't have to live in a warm climate in order to benefit by using a heat pump hot water system. And I've got some really useful resources in this podcast notes to if you do want to learn more about, about heat pump systems. And you can even assess which brand type may be the most efficient for you. So be sure to check out those links. The next area of energy use in a home are your appliances and they make up 14%. So these are items such as your dishwasher, your washing machine and your television. Assessing the energy efficiency of your appliances is worthwhile to reduce their overall energy use and selecting more energy efficiency, efficient appliances will definitely help. And I've popped some links in the podcast notes if you'd like some help with this. So those are the three top energy users in your home and obviously where improvements are going to make a really big dent in your home's overall energy use. So artificial heating and cooling, your water heating and your appliances combined, they're 77% of your home's energy use. So over three quarters, it's just from those three areas. What makes up the rest? Well, you've got refrigerators and freezers. They take up 8% of your energy use, so they're separate to your appliances. Uh, lighting is 7% and then cooking. So cooking's also separate to your appliances. That's 5% and then standby power is 3%. So let me run through those figures again. You've got your artificial heating and cooling is 40%. Your water heating is 23%. Your appliance use, which doesn't include refrigeration and doesn't include your cooking, that is 14%. And then you've got your lighting at 7%. You've got your refrigerators and freezers at 8%. You've got cooking at 5%. And then your standby power is 3%. Now, there is a lot of talk about homes being energy efficient, okay? I think, though, that the word efficient can actually be a bit deceptive here. And in fact, the word efficient, it's actually a word about production, about how you can make or accomplish something effectively with the least amount of waste and the most amount of economy. I recently actually had someone tell me, uh, a, a person that does design construct homes, they told me that their latest homes were amongst some of the most energy efficient homes that they'd ever done. Uh, these homes though, they were 700 square metres in size. The home itself was 700 square metres in size. They were building a lot of 800 square metre plus homes and some of their homes were over 1,000 square metres. There was one home that was 1,100 square metres for a family of four. Now, if efficiency is about producing something effectively with the least amount of waste and the most amount of economy, should this actually be able to happen in a 700 square metre home? You know, if people can live in a 200 square metre home, is a 700 square metre home wasteful? Can you have an efficient approach based on the most amount of economy, even if you're creating a 400 square metre home? You know, this, this whole line of thinking, and I'm not here to judge, I am not here to judge, what you do is your own personal choice. And this does come down to your own personal priorities. You know, what you hold is important and valuable and what your own appreciation is of waste and of efficiency and of economy. 
we make out that these terms are black and white and they're not, okay? They definitely are not. You know, what is wasteful to one person can be really considered efficient by someone else. But I want to take you through uh, the data around home size in Australia. And if you're listening from somewhere else, I'm going to have some information for you as well. And just think about it in alignment with all of this conversation around efficiency and energy efficiency and just the word efficient in general. So I've actually accessed some updated figures for Australia. Uh, Comsec commissioned the Australian Bureau of Statistics just recently to supply data on the average floor area of new homes built in Australia. And they published their findings on the 1st of November, 2021. So at the time of recording this episode, they're nice and recent, okay? So something to know first though, is that the ABS, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, it actually uses the terms homes and houses when it talks about these areas in its stats. And homes and houses are not defined as the same thing when it comes to talking about this data, which can be a bit confusing actually. The term houses, so a house, it is actually a single freestanding dwelling. That is what is considered a house or houses in the ABS data. And anytime that you see data around uh, residential stuff being being discussed, houses generally refers to single freestanding detached dwellings. Whereas homes, the definition of homes also bundles in uh, those freestanding dwellings, but it adds in apartments, townhouses, terraces, any other kind of residential uh, type of dwelling. Okay. So homes is the bundled collection of all of those things and houses are the single freestanding dwellings on their own. So uh, the summary the, of the report actually states that after posting the biggest increase in 11 years during the 2019-2020 period, homes built nationally, so that's all of them, homes built nationally over 2021 were on average slightly smaller than the previous year. Apartments were bigger, but the detached houses were slightly smaller. Okay, so We've been trending up for a long time, biggest biggest uh, sizes in 2019, 2020, but we've actually declined uh, over 2020 and 2021. Apartments have got bigger, but the single freestanding dwellings have got slightly smaller. I'm going to take you through some individual notes from the report because it's really interesting. So the ACT continues to build the biggest houses in Australia. So the biggest freestanding dwellings are in ACT. And in 2021, the average floor area of a house built in the ACT was 259.3 square metres ahead of Victoria, which was 238.8 square metres and Queensland was 231.5 square metres. The smallest new houses built in Australia in 2021, 2020 to 2021 were actually in Tasmania and they were 176.5 square metres. So that's a bit of a difference. ACT at 259.3 square metres, Tasmania 176.5 square metres for freestanding uh, detached houses. Now the average Australian freestanding house, it is 24% bigger than the house that was built 30 years ago. So I'm 48 years old this year. And so the house I grew up in, you know, that's kind of 30 years ago, I was 18. So, you know, that's quite interesting that just in that one generation of the houses that we grew up in versus the houses that we're building now, there's a 24% increase in size. Now, the data also confirmed that Australia and the US continue to build the biggest homes in the world. However, the average size of house in both Australia and the US has been falling from the highs for various reasons. The increased focus on sustainability, the desire for low maintenance homes, smaller lot sizes, fewer people per home, the affordability and a desire for proximity to inner cities and energy costs. 
Now, unfortunately, the report says there is no single source to compare average home size across the globe. And in many cases, the information is dated, such as the available data for the European Union. The average US house was 229.6 square metres, whereas Australia's is 229.3 square metres. So we're pretty much neck and neck. 0.3 to 0.6 is the difference, okay? Now, apart from Australia and the US, statistics uh, in New Zealand, they regularly calculate the average floor area of a new dwelling as well. And then the Canadian Home Builders Association, it's also advised data on home size based on Ontario and on the 2016 census data. So in June 2021, the average new home in New Zealand was 155.3 square metres. Okay, so that's a big difference from Australia and from the US. In Canada, the average size of the new house, so a detached dwelling, was 221.1 square metres and the average new home, which bundles in apartments as well, was 141.2 square metres. So we're looking at Canada at 221.1 square metres compared to the US and Australia, which are over 229 square metres. Now, in 2012, Eurostat compiled data on the average size of dwelling by income, quintile and tenure status. And the data ranged from 43.9 square metres in Romania to 141.2 square metres in Cyprus. And Statista also released selected floor space estimates, including Greece at 77 square metres, the UK at 85 square metres, Ireland at 88 square metres and the Netherlands at 98 square metres. Now that's a big variation in sizes, isn't it? And when you look at those averages in Australia of 259 square metres in ACT being the largest house size in Australia, that's still an average, okay? It's worth remembering that is still an average. That's the point of averages, isn't it? You know, because I know that I'll say to some homeowners that the average size of a house is 259 square metres and they'll tell me that's super small. And I see loads of house plans on a regular basis that are 300 square metres, 400 square metres and bigger. So for 259 square metres to be the average house size and that house size doesn't include apartments or terrace homes or townhouses, that means that there are a lot of people building smaller freestanding dwellings as well. Now, also from the report, and this was really an interesting statement, it is important to point out that there are still only around 2.5 people in the average home. Home builders regularly seek to include four bedrooms on the architect plans together with a master ensuite, walk-in robes, butler's pantry, home theatre room, formal study and or study nook, mud room and alfresco dining. Interestingly, all this sits oddly with green living credentials. It's an interesting sum up, isn't it? That's Comsec saying that. So, you know, that's literally the last point in a five-page report before they then share a bunch of graphs. So if you want to see the report for yourself, I've put a link in the podcast notes for this episode and you can find them by heading to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 220. That's the numbers 220. So what's the upshot of all of this? You know, what is the right house size for you? Could you actually create a smaller floor plan? Remember I said up front that this episode was an update on my most popular episode on the whole po- podcast, which that episode was co- was titled The Most Important Thing to Know When Designing a Home. I want to take you on a bit of a tangent here because it's all well and good for me to tell you what the most important thing is, which I still think is designing for orientation and how to think about your decision making overall. But I think that it helps if it's framed with a certain mindset first, because when you've got that mindset in place, then it can make everything a lot simpler for you overall. And as part of that, I do think the words that we use become really important and how we understand those words and what associations they have for us. You know, what do we make them mean? That also becomes super important. 
So as I said earlier, I actually find that the whole idea of efficiency is discussed a lot when it comes to energy and sustainability and improving homes overall. And I also said that I think that the word efficiency can be a bit deceptive. So efficiency, it's still a term about production, as I said. It's production with the least amount of waste and the most amount of economy, but it's a really industrialised term that's still all about us putting out product, material and energy. It's still a term, the word efficient is still a term about use and consumption. The root of the word efficiency, it's in French and Latin words with meanings like to make and to accomplish. And in the 1700s, to be efficient actually meant to be productive or to be skilled. And so I wonder if instead using the word efficient or efficiency to talk about our homes, we instead started using words like sufficient or sufficiency, that you actually create a home that is energy sufficient, not energy efficient. The word sufficient, it means enough or adequate, and it has its roots in words with meanings like to meet the need of. It's a really different word to efficient, even though they literally sound like the same word with a different prefix. The idea of sufficiency or enoughness, that's not a new one, you know, but I definitely think it's an awesome way to frame your thinking about the home that you're creating and the pathway to it. It's a really different way of considering your consumption as well, your consumption of energy, of space, materials, products and resources. So what does sufficiency mean to you? What is enough house? What meets your needs or is adequate? I think it's really interesting because even just rolling those words of enough and adequate over in your head, that may feel like you're selling yourself short, you know, in a world that's all about more and growth and achievement, you know, adequate, it can sound like a bit of underdoing, can't it? You know, no one says, oh, I've got really adequate goals. Or when you say, you know, it was an adequate amount of cake or it was an adequate amount of money, it sounds like you've gone without a bit, doesn't it? Creating an adequate house, That might sound a bit mediocre to you, but I'd love you to play with this idea for a while for yourself. See if it's a case of how we've possibly been conditioned in our thinking to think that more is better than enoughness. Whether we've been conditioned to think that having what we want is better than having what we need and that producing without waste, as it is with efficiency, is better than simply meeting our needs, which is more about sufficiency. How are you thinking about this yourself for your home and the design that you're creating, the materials that you're choosing and the way that you're creating your project? Are you thinking about efficiency or are you thinking about sufficiency? Be conscious about the words that you use and the way that you think about these things because it can go a long way to having awareness in your project journey and being really intentional about the home that you create for yourself. Now, I said up front, I was going to help you with ordering your decisions in your home design. So let's jump to that now. I do actually have a personal order or a criteria for how I think about creating a sustainable home, and I like to keep it pretty simple. And it can, of course, be much more involved. Each of these things will have loads of layers, and the weight that you put on specific things can also vary based on your own personal value judgments as well. But this is how I often discuss it with homeowners who ask me, you know, what should I focus on if I want to create a sustainable home? So let's go through these things in order. Firstly, it's definitely orientation. 
Designing for orientation, as I've said, it means using what is freely available on your site to the advantage of your home and your living experience. It will lower your heating and cooling costs. It will make the home feel great. It'll help you access natural light on a regular basis. And that has long lasting benefits for your well-being and for your home's energy use. Next, it's the size of the home. So design a smaller house as much as you can. You'll use less of everything as a result. That might mean that you can build on a smaller lot size, which may be more affordable for you, or it may help you to maximise your garden area and your soft landscaping, and that will bring benefits and spaciousness through your indoor-outdoor connection. It'll help stabilise the ambient temperature through creating a microclimate around your home, and it'll assist with water management in its reduction of hard surfaces and water runoff around your house as well. After that, it's to reduce your energy and your water use. So part of this will be to review your appliance selection, your water heating, your lighting, and all of the other items that you'll be specifying for your home. Choose energy efficient appliances and water efficient appliances where you can. The other part's going to be in considering the thermal performance of your home. So this still sits under that idea of reducing your energy and water use. So you need to assess the insulation that you'll use, the air tightness of your home, the window selection, and using a specific frame type, glass type, double glazing, for example, and how much your home's construction and building envelope can actually help you naturally stabilise the indoor air temperature. And if you're then using any artificial heating or cooling, actually retain that internally so you're not letting that energy dissipate beyond your home's interior. Consider how you're going to lower your water needs as well in the home through the fixtures and fittings that you choose and how you can potentially store and reuse water on site so that you don't require as much input in clean water overall. So all of those are about creating a home that uses and consumes less, both in its build and in its occupation. Less energy, less space, less water, less heating and less cooling requirements. Next, the next thing that I recommend is to source your energy use from renewable energy sources. So once you've done all of that lowering, once you've figured out how you can get your home operating to the minimum requirements for your energy use, then you look at sourcing your energy use from renewable energy sources. And these things all go hand in hand, but there's no point you focusing on renewable energy sources without trying to lower your energy requirements in the first place, okay? You'll be spending a lot of unnecessary budget otherwise. So lower all your energy use and then look at supplying that energy use by renewable energy sources. So that's going to mean specifying solar power for your home or purchasing renewable energy from your power supplier. It means not installing any gas appliances or hot water heaters uh, that are gas supplied as well. Many councils are actually starting to phase out gas and developers are now not including gas infrastructure in their subdivisions. If you want to learn more about solar power, there are actually two really fantastic interviews with Lucy Best from the Moreland Energy Foundation Limited in season eight of the podcast. And I'll pop those links in the podcast notes as well. Next, it's to review your material selection and determine a criteria that you will use to assess your choices. So it could be that you want to source everything locally to reduce its carbon footprint. Perhaps you want all materials and products to be low tox or low VOC so that they'll have a minimal impact on your indoor air quality. It could be that you want all materials to have a reduced level of embodied energy. Perhaps you want to have a carbon calculation done for your home so that you can reduce that as much as possible through your selections and then maybe purchase offsets. There are lots of ways to attack this and you can do some really wonderful things with the people and the products that are available in the industry. And that leads me to my next step, which actually this might be the first step in all of this. And that's to look at the team that you create for your project. 
Work with a designer or an architect who is focused on sustainable design, whether it's through passive solar design techniques, through net zero homes, passive house or something similar. Not all designers or architects care about sustainability. Okay, I'll say that again. Not all architects and not all designers care about sustainability. So make it part of your selection and interviewing process if it is a priority for you. Next, work with an energy efficiency consultant who can collaborate with you and your designer to generate modelling of your home during the design phase because this will actually enable you to make data-driven decisions about things like insulation, window sizes, double glazing, roof colour and all the other specifics rather than you just assuming that they're going to make your home more sustainable and energy efficient. NATHERS and basics assessments, they have to happen in your project anyway, so you may as well include them for useful creative input, not just for an assessment after all the design has been done and decided on. And if you want to learn more about this, check out podcast episode 208 on light roofs versus dark roofs, where I have a conversation with Sid too about all of this uh, and about how to include an energy efficiency consultant on your team. Uh, because uh, it's a really fantastic run through of what that can look like. And you can find that episode link in the podcast notes, or you can head to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 208. That's the numbers 208. Now include a builder in your design process as well, and they can provide input on cost and buildability and identify where you can streamline things to improve your home sustainability overall. This is going to be especially helpful if you're weighing up where it's best to invest your budget and considering how you're going to spend your budget to achieve the home that you want. Also review all of your other team members, you know, where can their collaboration during the design phase assist with you designing sufficiently and making the best selections for your personal criteria. There may be team members such as your structural engineer, your landscape designer and interior designer. And then you want to set up a construction process that helps you ensure that you're getting things installed correctly and you're working with a builder who prioritises the sustainable performance of your home. Because we build to a very low and bare minimum. And so meeting code, meeting your local codes, it's not a great endorsement. It's actually possible to achieve better when it's designed in at the outset and then you're working with the right team to deliver it on site as well. There is no point you specifying all of these things during the design stage to achieve sustainability and high performance and then you don't get them installed correctly and as a result, they don't work effectively in the use of your home overall and long term. Now, finally, I'm going to leave you with this, okay? Many homeowners say to me, they want to do a sustainable home, but they just get told it's going to be more expensive. And that's often because sustainability measures are getting bolted on as additional specifications after the design has been done conventionally. So if you're upgrading to achieve sustainability, it is going to be more expensive, However, if you're identifying how you can design a home where you can save in the size, in the structure, in energy use, then sustainability doesn't have to be more expensive. I'd love you to think about efficiency versus sufficiency. So what is enough home for you? And this can actually be a great question to ask yourself at every step of your project to assess if you're making choices in alignment with your own personal values. And that's it for episode 220 and our update on our year one reboot. So if you'd like more information on how to design a sustainable home, make sure you check out season eight of the podcast. The whole season is called A Simple Guide to a Sustainable Home and it contains a huge range of interviews and discussions on various aspects related to design, construction and specification in a sustainable project. Now, in the next episode, I'm going to be sharing a reboot of one of the uh, most popular episodes from year two of the podcast. So make sure you stay tuned for that. 
If you want more information on what I've discussed in this episode, I've got a load of resources for you, links that you're going to find super helpful. So make sure you head to the podcast notes and you'll find them and a full transcript to this episode available as a downloadable PDF for free by heading to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 220. That's the numbers 220. Please share this podcast episode with family, friends, colleagues, even strangers, basically anyone that you know it may help so that we can get this information and knowledge into the ears and hands of as many homeowners as possible and improve their experience of designing, building and renovating their family homes. I love hearing the stories of those who found this podcast thanks to the generosity of another listener. It is just awesome. Now, if you haven't left a review on the Undercover Architect podcast, especially if you listen on iTunes, I would be so grateful if you please could. It really makes a difference in enabling this podcast to reach others that it can help. And it also ensures that I can continue to grow the podcast and get amazing guests and information on here as well. Be sure to tune in for our next episode, which lands each Tuesday morning to access helpful information and education in your project journey so that you can get it right as you design, build or renovate your family home. As always, thank you for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally. Until next time, bye.